Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. Today's episode is the last in a four-part series on long-acting antiretroviral medications for both the treatment and prevention of HIV infection. This series features international panel discussions among Dr. Christina Mussini from Italy, Dr. Yvonne Galise from the United Kingdom, and Dr. Daryl Tan from Canada, all led by Dr. Baba Femi Taiwo from Chicago, Illinois. In this episode, our expert faculty share their thoughts on what will be needed from future long-acting HIV treatment and prevention strategies to address populations who are not eligible for currently available long-acting options. The faculty also discuss important considerations for leveraging long-acting HIV approaches to address care inequities across different populations. For more information about our guests and for additional online education on this topic, please visit the link in the show notes. So now let's turn it over to Dr. Taiwo and the faculty panel. So it's always wonderful to share a stage with my distinguished colleagues. And today we'll talk about the future of long-acting HIV prevention and treatment. We'll try to address what's still needed, particularly to further address inequities that still, unfortunately, we have in our field. So I'm going to first call on Yvonne, Dr. Gillis, to really talk about potential for even longer acting options than the ones that we have today. Thank you, Dr. Tyro. I think this is really exciting because obviously we've got two monthly injectables at the moment, but even with cabotegravir and rilpivirin, the plan is potentially to have some kind of newer formulations so that uh, doses could be given every 6 to 12 monthly. We also have data from uh, Calibrate and Capella, so in treatment resistant, but also treatment experienced patients. So two types of patients showing uh, lenacapravir currently with an oral combination for every six months. And I think if we have lenacapravir, potentially having something else that's injectable every six months, that could be where the future is. But we know that lenacapravir works not only in treatment experienced patients, but also in highly treatment resistant patients, very small numbers, but really exciting data showing that even in that group of patients, we could have success. So that's currently where we are at the moment. But obviously, we know that uh, other formulations and injectables may be on their way. Right. That's outstanding. Uh, Thank you so much. And I think in this future, to couple even and improve uh, the options for our patients, it would be nice to have things that can be self-administered or things that can have improved portability. We don't have that yet with the carbotagavarial PV rate. Can we have a comment uh, maybe from uh, Dr. Tan? Can I call you Daryl? Of course. All right. (laughs) Thanks so much, Bob. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is something that many of our patients enthusiastically ask us about when they first learn that the injectable, they say, oh, you know, maybe I can do it myself. Maybe they have a healthcare provider in the family and they think, oh, my, my partner could inject it for me and that'll be make things so much more easily. But of course, that's not a recommended route or a feasible route for administering a long-acting injectable cabotegravir and rilpivirine. We do have experience, you know, way back when in, in our field with, you know, self-administered and fevertide, of course. But, you know, we, we certainly don't want to go back to that twice-a-day subcutaneous injection sort of regimen. We're looking for longer-acting rather than more frequent administration. So uh, certainly there's room for uh, improvement. Uh, many of us had, of course, hoped 
that, you know, the long-acting oral Islatrovir might have held promise in this regard. We are even monthly ill for treatment uh, or prevention, but of course, that development program has held up uh, quite significantly by some challenges. So the future, uh, we're optimistic that things will come down the pipeline that could be self-administered and make it easier for a broader range of patients to, to use uh, these, these agents, but we're, we're not quite there yet uh, with the current uh, armamentarium. Right. Thanks so much, Daryl. And a couple of points. I mean, certainly, you know, we've heard about the interest in having high intramuscular injection of um, carbotegravir or ribavirin. So that's something that we were keen to learn more about. And also the Islatrovir issue. You know, I saw, um, I think a couple of weeks ago or thereabout, this announcement from the, the manufacturers of Islatrovir that they will actually restart the phase three program. Um, in which they're combining Islatrovir with Doravirin at a lower dose of the Islatrovir. But that's not our interest today, right? So that's still once a day. But they, they in fact also announced that the phase two program that would include that the weekly Islatrovir at a lower dose, now at a lower dose, combined with Lenocaprovir at a lower dose, will be resumed as well. So I think that that program um, will be resuscitated and or has been resuscitated. And so we're keen to see what this weekly uh, thing that shows us in the, in the near future, at least in the phase two. And so I'm going to turn to Christina now and say, Christina, you know, these things about ACE resistance, we've gotten very used to regimens that patients take forever without any resistance. And we were sort of intolerant of even low levels of resistance as maybe was a scene with uh, an RTI and also ACE with uh, the option that we have now. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you see a future where we'll have long acting agents that would have resistance uh, characteristics that are just like uh, integrase plus uh, uh, NRTIs that we have today orally? Actually, I think that uh, we will pay a little price in terms of resistance for the present option that we have for uh, long acting because either cabotagravir or ripivirin have shown to uh, can fail and uh, um, select resistance as also lenacapavir. So I think that uh, probably we should be very, very clear to our patient, telling them that uh, the magical world they were, they were living in with uh, zero resistance uh, when they fail, uh, probably it's over. Uh, obviously, we are talking about a, a small percentage of patients who will fail, but and an even smaller one will develop resistance. Uh, but it's something that uh, you know turn us back uh, to PIs because if a patient will fail uh, these two option, he should be put on. Uh, I mean, he should be prescribed with a boosted PIs because we don't have other options now. So um, I'm wishing that in the future, since we are talking about the future, we can have both uh, the long action and, and also the high genetic barrier that we are used to now with the oral combination. Right. So that's, that's sort of a, a, a dream that we have. And hopefully we'll all get there where we have long acting therapies that are not only um, longer in terms of duration of activity, but also have a robust resistance barrier that matches or maybe someday uh, even surpass what we have today, right? Nothing stops us from dreaming. Yes. 
Now, I know, Yvonne, you're really passionate about women and, and access of long-acting therapies to women. Do you want to comment on pregnancy and how this innovation can be democratized to pregnant women? So phase two and phase three trials of long-acting cabotegravir and relpivirin excluded women at risk of pregnancy. So there were 26 women who became pregnant during the study. And uh, we do have some follow-up data on those women. And this is really more or less all the data that we have. And from the total of 26 women, there were 11 live births. And then there were 15 non-live births. So six first trimesters, spontaneous abortions or miscarriages, one second trimester miscarriage, seven terminations and one ectopic pregnancy. And there was one congenital abnormality, which was ptosis reported in the live birth. So from the uh, 11 live births. So that's the data that we have from clinical trials. The other source of information for pregnant women living with HIV is the Antiretroviral Pregnancy Registry, uh, which we all submit data voluntarily to. And again, there's very limited data there. So up until July 31st, 2021, we have information on two live births reported um, with one unspecified defect in one of the infants. So it's not a neural tube defect, which I know was the worry that we had previously with uh, another uh, INSTI, so dolutegravir. So we're not seeing a safety signal emerging uh, for cabotegravir, but we really don't have uh, good information as yet. Well, Piverin, we do. We have more information, um, but we don't have enough yet to say that combination of cabotegravir and Piverin together in a long acting combination uh, is safe. Yeah, thank you so much. So we stay tuned on that, awaiting uh, more information. Now, there's so many other uh, important populations for whom um, long-acting therapy has really not been an option right now because of the way the drug uh, was developed, etc. But And I'm going to mention six of them, or perhaps just five of them, and then ask uh, Daryl to just pick any one of them that he would like to, to comment on. And, and these are the different subgroups, treatment-naive persons. We know that right now they're not covered. How about viremic treatment experienced persons, youth, people with HBV co-infection, and people with transmitted NNRTI or insulin resistance? Is there any one of these populations that you'd like to comment on? Sure. Well, there's so much to comment on here, but maybe, maybe I'll just comment on youth briefly. I mean, this is a population in whom we all know uh, uh, whether ourselves uh, inheriting them as adult providers from the adolescent years or just from our pediatric colleagues that, you know, there's always going to be challenges uh, with with adherence to any regimen, uh, whether it's an HIV regimen or another uh, chronic medical uh, condition that requires treatment. So having options that can really meet the the, the lives of, of young people, of adolescents, where so much is, is changing in their in their world and their lives is really vital. And uh, fortunately, you know, there will be data uh, forthcoming. We know that there's a large uh, MOCA, uh, it's called trial. I think it's more options for children and adolescents or, or something like this, um, looking at long-acting injectable cab with rilpivirine that we're, we're optimistic that we'll see results that are, you know, similarly encouraging to what uh, what has led to the licensure of those uh, drugs in, in, in adults. Um, and again, uh, the same holds true on the prevention side of things, where we hope that uh, that uh, long-acting cabotegravir could be um, a good, good prep option uh, for populations 
uh, you know, administered as, as infrequently as every two months, you know, maybe that is something that could really be fit into uh, a, a challenging uh, adolescent uh, schedule. And Yvonne, do you want to pick? So with the treatment viremic and with people with um, resistance, I know we've talked about We've talked about them, but we do have some data. So we have Lena Capravir data, don't we, from Capella. Very small numbers of patients looking at those two different groups of patients. So patients who have a viral load greater than 400 with three or four uh, class resistance, drug class resistance, being randomized to Lena Capravir or uh, other treatment and placebo. And, and basically, yeah. this is not a group of individuals we would ordinarily reach for this therapy for based on what we have currently. But in the future, where we have individuals who we don't potentially have another option for or we're worried about PI um, adherence, so having to take an oral drug every day, we have small numbers of data to show that even when there are no active drugs in the optimized background regimen for an individual. Giving them lenacaprevir can cause virological suppression. So really, really small data. But actually, this is very exciting and will be a group of people who we will always need to have that other option for. And oral treatment may not be an option for those individuals. So... You know, this is data that suggests that we may be able to look at this in larger numbers of numbers of individuals who potentially have no other options where this may be an option for them in the future. Fantastic. Uh, thanks so much. And now just uh, in the last few moments that we have, uh, are there ways for long acting options to expand access to currently underserved uh, populations? We're talking about racial and ethnic minorities, transgender people, and people living in poverty. So maybe just 15 second comments uh, from uh, each person. Uh, Daryl, go first. Sure, I'll, I'll, I don't know about 15 seconds, but I'll make a quick comment about that. <laughs> yeah. um, I think obviously this really comes down to implementation, right? And implementation it's, uh, science itself is, is a field of, of rigorous research that re really requires a lot of attention uh, equal, if not maybe even more than some of the clinical uh, research sometimes, because we've got great tools, we need to put them into action. I, I want to draw this very quick analogy to another new technology that's arisen uh, with great potential in the last few years, for which there were, again, major equity concerns, and that's COVID vaccines. There's there's beautiful evidence that's been um, done by, uh, by, by great researchers demonstrating that even when this new tool um, came about, and we recognized that we needed to ensure it was reaching those who are most affected by this infectious disease, in that case, COVID. Uh, here we're talking about HIV. Uh, there were really uh, bleak inequities uh, in just even the geographic locations in which COVID vaccines were first available. And even when efforts were made to make them available, for, for instance, in uh, high incidence uh, settings, sometimes the, um, the, 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 the profile of the populations who were able to seek it out, uh, independently go and, and access it, were folks who did have more socioeconomic privilege. So we need to be really thoughtful in our implementation about this injection, a long-acting injectable hepatitis or whatever the future may hold, about not only prescribing it to the right patients, but, but making sure that we're thoughtful about ensuring that it is literally physically available. Um, and of course, reimbursed. But uh, even with that hurdle passed, we need to, to put it in, in a partner with pharmacies uh, in hard hit areas, um, a partner with um, community organizations that may have longstanding relationships to you know, bring the technology 
to folks who might otherwise have, have just challenges uh, participating in the more traditional uh, routes of, uh, of providing our treatment options. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now that's uh, that's uh, terrific. Christina? Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, uh, I mean, uh, I see only uh, a duty from uh, our side, from doctors, clinicians and hospital to organize themselves uh, and to organize the delivery of these drugs uh, in order to allow everybody to have who need them to, re to have them. So it's really an organization for us, uh, at least uh, in, uh, in Italy, I think that if we can deliver these drugs also outside of the hospital, making the life of the patient simpler, this will be a turning point, I think. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Yvonne? So I guess for me, as well as implementation, I think education is really important for patients because there are large groups of people living with HIV who don't know anything about injectable therapy. They don't know what it involves. They don't know the advantages or the disadvantages. Therefore, they don't even know whether or not they want to avail of this therapy. So I think engaging the community as much as possible and trying to engage as many individuals within the community, so not just one particular group. So trying to reach out um, using uh, voluntary organizations, using activists to try and encourage education will mean that when we have the ability to implement these services for patients, that patients are aware of them and can avail of them. Thank you so much, uh, Yvonne. Thanks, uh, Daryl. Thanks, Christina. And I think we can all agree that the future is actually now. Right. We are living a future right now, but this future can be further extended to meet the goals that are currently unmet by the currently available therapeutic option. So on that note, I'd like to thank all of you and thank our listeners uh, for a terrific time. Thank you, Dr. Taiwo and faculty panel for sharing your insights with us. And thank you for listening. Look out for more episodes in this series at clinicaloptions.com forward slash HIV.